Some days just feel like drowning, don't they? Some days really do just feel like we are drowning. Yesterday was one of those days for me, actually. Uh, I woke up early. I was working hard on my homily. I went and set up for a big, huge, beautiful wedding. I was running late for confessions because the wedding was just so beautiful that it ran into our regularly scheduled confessions. There was a really long line. It was hard to get through everybody, but it happened by the grace of God. Then I came running back over here to the sacristy in order to set up for the 5.30 mass, and nobody was there to set up, so it was like, oh my gosh, I'm drowning here. I felt like I was literally drowning. And I'm sure that you all can relate to this feeling, too. Maybe it's responsibilities at work, or mountains of homework at school, or conflicts and situations in your family, problems with relationships, fights with your husband or with your wife, medical problems, financial uncertainties, stress here, stress there. Sometimes it just feels like we're drowning. And then we look at the world around us. And let's be honest, that looks like it's drowning too. So much seems unhinged right now. Those images that we saw this past week of rioters breaking into our nation's capitol building were scary. They were disturbing to us because it looked as if the country that we all love, the country so many souls have fought for and defended with their lives, is drowning. Drowning in division. Drowning in selfishness. Drowning in bitterness on every side. One scroll through social media these past few days is enough to make you feel totally inundated. Censorship and mean-spirited comments, dismissive and holier-than-thou declarations from every side, flattening, canceling, memeing, tearing apart, factions and rivalry running amok, regardless of your political leanings. I'm not really interested in them. All of this is overwhelming for all of us, and newsflash, none of it is of God. The devil feasts on dividing us and isolating us, tearing us apart and separating us. He loves to make us feel like we are drowning with no hope for coming back up for air. Perhaps, given all of this, it is fitting that the church meditates today on the baptism of the Lord. Because baptism, for all intents and purposes, looks like drowning. In fact, it is supposed to look like drowning. In the early church, catechumens who presented themselves for baptism and professed the faith of the church were literally dunked under the waters, totally immersed three times proclaiming their firm conviction and belief in the thrice-holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This sacramental ritual was meant to both visibly symbolize and somehow mysteriously affect the destructive and the cleansing realities of God's invisible grace. Those new believers were being plunged into the very crucifixion and death of Christ himself. 
It was meant to feel like they were dying. Why? Because something really was dying. Original sin was dying. The old man was dying. Their former way of life was dying. Their previous sins were dying. So when they were lifted back up out of those waters, out of death, out of the tomb, they were filled again with air, filled again with life, filled with the resurrection, filled with the Holy Spirit himself. That's how Christians have always been born, by entering into the drowning waters of baptism and then coming back up again, fully alive in the Holy Spirit. One church father, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, said that the baptismal font was both our tomb and our mother. It's both death and life. It's both drowning and saving. Noah's flood is fulfilled and transformed by it. The waters of destruction become our birthplace. After baptism, after this mere drowning, we are dead to sin and alive to God. Our priorities are brand new because we are brand new. Anyone who is in Christ that is baptized into him, says St. Paul, is now a new creation. And this is important. Because though we all might feel like we're drowning right now or at various times in our lives, we can have bold, unyielding hope. We can have courage. Because in a certain real and sacramental way, we Christians have already drowned. We're already dead to anything that this life can throw at us. If that's true then what do we have to be afraid of? If God is for us, who can stand against us? If our faith is the victory over the world that we're all thirsting for, then what do we have to be afraid of? What can this world do to us? We are already drowned and already raised in Jesus Christ. Believing in this fact, we can then turn to the Lord, trusting in him, and face today's inundation from all sides, today's deluge of error, division, and hatred with love, with peace, with the firm conviction that we can go and preach the gospel of healing and conversion right in the midst of all of the swirling waters. But we have to be careful because anytime we feel like we are drowning, when we're flustered, or when we feel like everything is being taken away from us, when everything is changing, then there will be a very strong temptation placed before us. And that temptation is to lash out, to violently overreact, to pull everyone and everything else down into the waters with us, to refuse to listen to anyone except our own opinion and our own ideas. We close people out and we drown the whole world along with ourselves if we can. Ask any lifeguard and they'll tell you that saving a drowning person is dangerous and it requires careful technique and skill because that person's natural reflex is to pull the lifeguard down with them 
That's kind of where we're all at. We're all kind of just pulling each other down under the water, and it's not helpful for anyone. So how do we resist that temptation? My suggestion is that we all look to the Lord Jesus. I know, newsflash, I'm a priest. Go to Jesus. Jesus doesn't lash out. He doesn't thrash about pulling others down. No, he humbly submits to the drowning waters of baptism. He identifies himself with sinful humanity. He lowers himself. Jesus didn't need baptism, of course. He is without sin. In Matthew's version of the story, John the Baptist is fully aware of how outlandish this must look. John tries to prevent Jesus from submitting, saying even, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you are coming to me? Jesus responds again in total obedience to the Father. Allow it now. Allow it now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. A spectator may look at all of this and think, what's wrong with you, Jesus? Why are you submitting to this insult? You are better than this, Jesus. You're stronger than this. You don't need forgiveness. You don't need baptism. Throw that away. Just show yourself in full power. Overcome this crazy world. And yeah, he doesn't need baptism. And yeah, he's better than all this, perhaps. And yet, Jesus is showing us by personal example that he's free enough to abandon himself to God. He's free enough to love and obey his Father alone. And so, he slips beneath the water for us and with us. And the Father in heaven responds with a deep and eternal approval, doesn't he? We hear this voice from heaven say to Jesus, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Long before that amazing moment, the prophet Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah, saying, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Then it ends with this, I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Not in shouting, not in violence, not in domination, not in bullying, but in complete loving surrender. That's how God will affect his justice. Only by entering fully into the deluge, into the drowning waters, does Jesus bring about victory and peace. Only by hanging on a cross can Jesus bring about the salvation that we are being invited to share in. That is God's way. That's how he works. And if you think that that is too weak, if that's not good enough for you, if you think surrendering and dying is not a good enough tactic for real lasting victory, then I am sorry, but you are an obstacle to the Lord. You are not thinking as God does, but as human beings do. Yeah, those are hard words. But if Jesus could say that to Peter when he refused to accept the cross, then I can say that to you guys. And I encourage you, if you find yourself in that place, to repent and draw near to the Lord of all humility, 
and start really listening to him. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. But, and this is a really important thing to kind of end with, surrendering doesn't mean becoming a doormat that everyone can then walk all over. Far from it. Was Maximilian Kolbe a doormat when he offered to die in place of another condemned man in a Nazi concentration camp? No. Was Mother Teresa a doormat when after begging for bread and getting spit directly in the face, responded kindly? Thank you, sir. That was for me. But what about for these poor people behind me? Was she a doormat? No. Was St. Stephen a doormat when he was praying for all those angry people who were literally pelting him with rocks? No, he was not a doormat. Was Jesus a doormat when he turned himself into the temple guards in the Garden of Gethsemane when they asked him, well, where's Jesus? And he says, I am he. Was he a doormat? No, of course not. And remember, at those words, when Jesus says those words, I am he, what happens? The soldiers stumble back. They fall to the ground. They're astonished. They're blown away by the strength of Christ's weakness. That's what real power looks like. It looks like total confidence in God, not in flags, votes, machine guns, and Senate seats. It looks like Jesus laying down his life. My fellow Christians, are we going to listen to the world's tactics or to God's? That is the ultimate question that will determine the fate of our eternity. The gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. How narrow the gate and constricted the road that leads to life. Choose life. Listen to God. If you love him, keep his commandments. That's on the front of our cathedral in Richmond. Listen to our God who desires to speak over each one of us at the end of our lives with those beautiful words. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. But I'll warn you that listening to God will look like weakness. It will not look like strength. It often won't look like winning according to worldly standards. More than likely, it will look and feel like drowning. But Jesus leads the way. He goes down into the waters first. He is with us in our suffering. Are we weak enough to follow him?